Hey everybody. Welcome. I think you are muted and your video is off by default. I think that's, that's how we'll do it. And we'll let folks. Hey, it's Aaron Jacobs. How you doing, man? Good. How are you? Happy holidays. Oh, great. I haven't done one of these before, so my Zoom my Zoom configuration probably needs some tuning. Um, so as you all are arriving, I was saying, feel free to do video off, muted, um, or or whatever. I'll probably keep you muted muted until you're talking, but up to you whether you do video off or video on. So welcome. This is uh, I think as I said in the in an email recently we've kind of struggled over the last 18 months or so to figure out what, what, what would be of most use to you, our bookkeeping clients and how we can fulfill the promise of a monthly call, but have it be something that people actually want to participate in. So we'll be experimenting as we go together. Um, of course we can be in YNAB together. If we think that's useful, we can talk about business models. We can talk about bookkeeping. I did want to just share something that's on my mind right now because we're coming to year end. And um, I think I get this reminder every year at year end. And that is your, your bookkeeping, the management of your money in your business will always be easier as you keep your business banking, just sort of your business systems as simple as possible. So it's been funny over the eight years that I've been uh, since I started doing bookkeeping for life coaches that I've noticed a pretty strong correlation between simple banking in a business. And I'll talk about what I mean by that in a business and high profits in a business. It's sort of like the, the highest profit businesses tend to also be the simplest in terms of their infrastructure. Now I'm careful here because it's not that I'm saying I see these things as causal, as in uh, having a simple banking and banking setup and systems and tools in your business will make you more profitable. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you seem to find both in the same place. You seem to find high profits, and simple banking setups in the same businesses. So a few years ago, I realized uh, that when I, when I drop into a business for the first time, if I saw lots and lots of bank accounts, checking accounts, payment processing accounts, credit card accounts, it was just, it was kind of a signal like, okay, we may have a stressed out business owner here. We may have profits that aren't quite as high as we wish they were. And it's funny how that correlation has, has held up. I have, I have a growing number of data points to support that. So from our perspective, the simpler the banking setup, the simpler the systems, the better, because it makes bookkeeping smoother. But it's also been a pretty interesting indication of how the business owner is doing, how they're feeling. And um, weirdly, how much profit they're generating. So I wanted to share that. Also, there's from a, a year-end bookkeeping, just sort of a topic that comes up every year. There's the topic of issuing 1099s to contractors. Now, this is the most, it's the most boring topic in the world, but we all own businesses and we all have contractors and we have to deal with these things. So I have been for eight years now, pretty convinced that no one, that we mail off our 1099s and they go into some government warehouse and no one looks at them and they don't mean anything and they don't matter. So sort of do 1099s, don't do 1099s, doesn't really matter. Also, I've had enough conversations with tax professionals over the years and read enough articles online over the years about 1099s that I... I am at least as confused about 1099s today as I was in 2014. 
maybe more so. No one can seem to quite get their story straight about who should get a 1099 and how much money should be reported on that 1099. Even right now, there's like a lot of chatter in my team Slack about what, what's going on with 1099s because today for the first time ever, or yesterday for the first time ever, I had an email from one of my client's contractors who told me, you issued me a 1099 in 2018. Stripe also issued a 1099 for 2018 in my business. And the IRS thinks that I made twice as much money as I made because your 1099 amount was exactly as the, the same as the Stripe 1099 amount. And the IRS doesn't look at those and say, those are probably duplicate. The IRS says, you made all of that money. Now you have to pay us taxes on it and fees and penalties. I'd never had that happen before. And this contractor reached out and said, not only did it happen to me this year, but it happened to me last year too. So somebody seems to have gone into that warehouse where all the, the 1099s in store are stored and they're looking at them. And it's not that I think our 1099 reporting has ever been inaccurate or we actually do put care into what we do with those, but we've never been very confident about whether what we're doing is actually what the IRS cares about. So <laughs> all of that to say, you will be hearing from us about 1099s and what and how we can support you in making sure those are as accurate as possible. But going back to the simplicity conversation, if you want your 1099 stuff to be as simple as possible, pay all your contractors with a credit card through a payment processor. So in other words, if you're paying contractors through Venmo, if you're paying them through PayPal friends and family, if you're writing them checks, if you're doing wire transfers, if you're using Gusto or some other payment processor to pay those contractors, none of these are necessarily bad solutions, although some of them are explicitly against the terms of service of those providers like Venmo and PayPal. But all of them create potential hassle with your 1099 issuing. And now for the first time ever, I'm seeing, oh, hassling your 1099 stuff might actually correlate to hassle in your tax bill. So if you want to make it really simple, tell your contractors to invoice you, pay them through a credit card, and then tell them that the 3% fee they're paying is part of modern business. And we'll see how they react. Anyway, that is sort of my bookkeeping moment. What questions, what questions, concerns came up for anybody in the room about that topic? Raise your hands, by the way, or, or there are few enough of you that I can see you all in one pane on my screen. So if you raise your hand, I should be able to see you. Or if you want to just unmute, that's probably fine too. We don't have a ton of people here. Any questions about that? Does anybody feel now extra stressed? I hope not. I don't think it's worth that. Uh, Jenny asked in the chat, one of my clients sent me a 1099 to fill out this week, but I'm an S-Corp. Do I need to provide her one? You don't, as an, as an S-Corp, you don't need to provide a, a, a W-9 to your client. That, I think that's what you're actually asking, Jenny. They'll say, hey, fill out this W-9 so we can issue you a 1099. And you'll say, I'm an S-Corp. You don't need to issue me a 1099. And then sometimes they'll argue with you because I've had that happen. No, we really do have to issue you a 1099. No, I promise you don't. Yep. Every year. <laughs> every year. Yeah. Aaron, you're, you've been there. Um, yep, every year. S-Corps, money paid to S-Corps does not have to be reported on a 1099, but well-intentioned clients who just want to dot all their I's, yep, I's, dot I's, cross T's they'll want to send you one anyway. Um, Melissa says, if you're an LLC who files as an S-Corp, is a 1099 still not required? Yeah, that's right, Melissa. If you, meaning if they want to give you a, a 1099, if your client does, and you say, no, I'm, a, I'm an LLC that files an, as an S-Corp, they don't need to give you one. The reason being as an S-Corp, you actually have to file S-Corporation returns. So you have to report all of your income on a specific form to the IRS. And that's how the IRS knows how much money you, that's part of how they know how much money you owe them. So 
Um, okay, Robert asks, I hear you saying to use fewer, use less accounts, but I've heard you mention before to put taxes and profits in a separate bank account. Is that still okay? Yeah, it's all okay. People who have 20 checking accounts, that's, that's okay because there are no rules. It just tends to be more hassle for the business owner. So Robert, here's my answer to you about, you know, should I store my, my tax money and my profit money in separate bank accounts? I would say yes, if that money is relatively stable. And here's what I mean. Many of you have probably heard of a book called Profit First. Fantastic book. I, I really think that it's uh, brilliant and useful. But in the book, the author, whose name is Mike Michalowicz, he, he proposes that business owners should have lot, several bank accounts and they should allocate the cash in their business between those bank accounts to make sure that they're, that they're dealing correctly with their cash. That's great until a business owner who's trying to get their legs under them sets up five different bank accounts for all these different jobs in their business. And then they transfer $100 over. And then the next day they're like, wait a minute, I need the $100 and they transfer it right back. So there've been a few times in, in my bookkeeping life where I've gone into a, a business where they mean very well, they want to manage their cash well. So they set up these different bank accounts. And then I go in and I find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of transfers between the primary operating account and then these aspirational accounts like profit and taxes. And, and the money's just bouncing back and forth between the accounts. If you know that you can transfer that money over to profit or over to taxes, and then mostly not touch it until it's actually time for that money to do its job, it's totally fine to have those, those separate accounts. But if you know you're just going to be bouncing it back and forth between, it just creates administrative hassle for you. We're having to go to your log onto your bank every week or every few days and oops, I need some money. I better transfer it back. So that's my take on that. Uh, it's funny because tons of transfers between accounts is also a pretty strong signal of a stressed out business owner. Like if, if uh, as a bookkeeper, you can't talk to the business owner, but you can just look at their bookkeeping. If I see tons of transfers between accounts, I'm like, Ugh, I hope they're sleeping. Not because they're doing anything wrong, but because I know how that correlates with stress. Food for thought. Aaron, please. Uh, yeah, a bit of a question there. I always have this, this worry at the back of my mind, even though I've, I've talked it out, that you know, through we're set up, as you're aware, with Gusto. I'm working with a tax specialist with Casey. Um, and he's set things up in Gusto, so there's a, a certain amount of salary because we're an S-corp that comes out from my wages and our employees' wages, things like that. I'm always worried that like, I should also be setting aside tax money in a separate account and what that should be. And so I'm just, once you're at that level and you're working with someone and they're automatically taking it out as salary for you, do you also need to be saving more for taxes? Yeah. Or are you probably good? So that's such a good question. So here's how to think about that. By the way, guys, what Aaron's talking about is when you, um, when you report a certain amount of profit to the IRS and then they tax you based on that profit, let's say in 2020, in 2021, you're required to pay what are called, uh, to, to make quarterly estimated payments because the IRS says you paid us this much last year. You're probably going to need to pay us at least that much this year. So we want you to pay that once a quarter. So it happens in January, April, June, weirdly. Uh, and then September or October. See, I, it's a weird schedule, but the IRS wants its money and they'll, they'll tell you how much they want based on how much you paid last year. So there's what's called a safe Harbor number. And the safe Harbor number is last year's taxes. Plus I believe 10%. That's sort of the number that the IRS says, if you'll pay that, then we're not going to charge you any penalties or fees for late payments, for not making those quarterly payments. So we just, we need you to pay at least that. Aaron is saying that his tax pro, who also happens to be mine, has set up his payroll service so that those, those quarterly numbers are being handled in the normal flow of the monthly payroll. So Aaron doesn't have to think about it. It's, it's handled, the IRS is happy, and Aaron doesn't have to stress out once a quarter. But that leaves Aaron wondering, do I need to also be saving extra? And here's how you look at it. If you go into your bookkeeping and you do sort of year over year comparison and you say, has my profit 
grown, shrunk, or stayed about the same compared to last year. If it's grown quite a bit, then the safe harbor number that's being taken out of your paycheck may not cover your actual tax bill because you're growing. If it has shrunk, you're probably on the path to a tax refund. And if it's about the same, nothing to worry, nothing to really think about. So it's all dependent on whether you're growing, shrinking, or staying the same. And you can look at your, uh, you can look at either YNAB or you can look at the PL spreadsheet that we send you and kind of do year over year comparisons to get a sense of do I need to be setting aside extra or not? Also, Casey, at least once a year, but he's also, I think, open to check ins. You know, if you want to shoot him an email here and there, I don't think he has a problem with that. Casey does, and I think all tax pros should do this. They usually do a check in call sometime in the fall to say, what is your guess about where you're actually going to land this year versus last year? Because if there's a lot of growth there, then he's going to say, okay, you need to be saving extra on top of what we've already been paying. So you're, you can check yourself by looking at your financials and hopefully your tax pro also wants to have a check-in with you at a time in the year that leaves you enough calendar so that you can catch up if you need to on your tax savings, your tax I should say withholding. Does that answer make sense? Super helpful. Yeah, that was super helpful. And he's done all those things. He checked in with me just about three weeks ago. Uh, Taryn pulled a PNL for me. And yeah, great. Now I don't have to worry. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I hate worrying about taxes. It's such a dumb thing. It, it's the thing. No one wants to spend any of their creative energy in their business wondering if they're on track with their taxes. It's the worst. Uh, Robert says, thanks for your answer. How can we pay those taxes incorporated with payroll, like you said, instead of quarterly, like Aaron is doing? So the system that Aaron is running requires you to be, uh, it requires you to run a traditional payroll service using something like gusto.com. There's adp.com. There are lots of payroll providers. In order to get set up with those, I believe, now don't hold me to this, do your own research. I believe you need to be set up as an S corporation or maybe a C corporation, either of those, but please do your own homework. And then having set yourself up that way, you can process payrolls that send the government some money in the form of withholding, takes care of things like FICO, which is your sort of social security tax stuff. And also then puts a net paycheck, a net deposit into your bank account, depending on how you've set it up. Several of my clients now elect to set their payroll up so that they actually don't get a paycheck. All the money goes to the government to make sure that their taxes are covered and their net paycheck ends up being zero. It's just, it's just one way to make sure that your taxes are getting paid and you're not having to think about it. And it's also a way of satisfying the requirement that if you're an S corporation, you are required to pay yourself some amount of salary per year. As an S corporation, you have to pay yourself wages. So um, Robert's saying, I use Wave. I'm an S corp. So I'm not familiar with Wave's payroll, Robert, their payroll services. As a bookkeeper, I don't love Wave because it's really hard to get the information out of Wave into other systems. Um, but I'm not, you could, you could set up Wave to do what we're talking about. I would work with a tax professional as in, I just had my meeting with my tax pro recently. We talked about my strategy for 2022 and he told me exactly what to do in gusto so that I don't have to think about taxes at all next year. Uh, would you suggest gusto? I've been very happy with gusto. They're not perfect. I don't think there's a perfect payroll provider out there. But I've been happy with them. And then my tax guy who deals with hundreds of people, he's, he's been happy with Gusto. So we sort of cautiously recommend Gusto to people. Other great questions. Other thoughts, questions? When does it make sense to switch to a regular paycheck versus a regular owner draw? Now, this is... Melissa, this is definitely one for you to discuss with your tax professional. My experience is that when business owners are generating above 50,000 a year in profit, 
their tax pro will very often say, it's time for you to become an S corporation and start paying yourself uh, a regular paycheck through a payroll service. That's been my experience, somewhere over, over 50,000 a year in profit. Now, here's the, hopefully I don't make a mess of this. Here's the sort of 60 second explanation as to why tax professionals recommend this. All of us, at least here in the United States, there, there's a tax, we call it self-employment tax. You, you'll hear it called FICA. It's the portion of your taxes that go to things like social security and I believe Medicaid and these kind of social services. Everybody pays these. If you're an employee, you pay them, um, you pay them through your paycheck, your payroll withholding. If you're an employer, you're also required to pay on all for every dollar that you pay in wages to an employee, you pay a percentage to this payroll tax, this FICA stuff. As self-employed people, when we take uh, draws out of our business, we end up being taxed on, we end up being overtaxed. So let's just use an example of $100. If I take $100 out of my business as a draw, I will end up paying, I believe, 15% of that as payroll tax before I ever pay income taxes. So that's 15% on top of, of my income taxes that I'll pay as an individual or as a household. When you form an S corporation and you start paying yourself a wage, it allows you to reduce the amount of that money that flows through to you personally and, and ends up being taxed at that, at that higher rate. Because instead of having $100, from that $100, I pay myself, let's say, $50 in wages, and now there's only $50 left. The 15% that I was talking about now it only applies to $50 instead of $100. So what we're doing is legally, it's legal, <laughs> we're legally reducing the amount of kind of double taxation that we're subject to as self-employed people. So when I met with my accountant the other day, he, he's having me redo what's called a reasonable compensation test, where I fill out a long series of questions that describe my day-to-day -day activities. Based on those day-to-day -day activities, the system spits out a number that says, this is your reasonable salary given your work responsibilities. And we are, we're trying to keep that salary as small as possible. By keeping that salary as small as possible, we're keeping those payroll taxes as small as possible. Does that make sense? I don't know that I explained this very well on the fly. I should write it up sometime. So that was a long answer to your question, Melissa. But that's it's usually right around 50,000 a year in profit when a, she says roughly makes sense. That was rough, I agree. Uh, enough to be dangerous when I'm talking to the CPA. Yeah, you're, I think you're probably definitely in the range of where it's time for that conversation with the CPA. And the way to well, the way to start that conversation is, I heard that maybe I should be forming, I should be, I should become an S corp, and then they'll take it from there. Whitney has a question about um, advertising spend. I've built my business organically, but I'm about to start automating some of my marketing. What do you see as a good margin for ad spend and marketing costs? Oof. How many webinars should we do on this? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, we're part of what we do is we're a marketing firm and then coaching and training is something we spun up as another part of our business as Mark knows. And we get this question all the time. And I can tell you as a marketing agency, even we have a million different answers to this question. Yeah. It's yeah. It's how much are you making? How much, how much do you want to grow? How, how aggressive do you want to be? It's kind of like stock market. Like what's your risk tolerance? Yes. What are your channels? So many things. One of the first things, whenever somebody uh, tells me that they're considering a move into paid advertising, I always subject them to my 
to, to the, the metaphor of the black box. In business, there's a black box and we all pretend there isn't one, but there is one. And the black box contains all those factors that we can't quite tease out that relate to our success. So on one side of the black box, we have our inputs, our effort and our time and the money we spend on ads and the money we pay our team. Those are all the inputs. We put all those into the black box and then weird stuff happens. And then the other side, on the other side, we have revenue and profit. And we don't really know what's going on inside that black box. We think we do. And we pay coaches thousands of dollars so that they can tell us because they tell us they know what's going on inside the black box and they might know better. They might have a better way of analyzing the black box than we do, but the, but the black box is still a black box. In fact, my friend uh, who manages, I mean, she manages millions of dollars of ad spend per year, including for some businesses that you all are all very familiar with. And she and I have talked a lot about correlation versus causation. And causation says, uh, you may have all heard this before, causation says, I put $1 in and I get $2 out. And that's advertising. And why wouldn't you just do more and more of that? Just put a dollar in and get $2 out. Correlation is like, put a dollar in and, uh, you know, $2 did come out, but why? Was it just the ad? Was it also that people, uh, that my word of mouth is pretty good? Was it also that I have actually decent search engine optimization that I don't really know about, but oops, it happened? Was it also that timing was really good? I sort of timed the market. My, my topic is particularly relevant at this point in time. There's a million factors in this equation, but, the, but what we tend to hear online is, if you put a dollar into Facebook ads, you're going to get $2 out. Uh, maybe sometimes, maybe after a certain amount of trial and error, it's, it's, it's not quite, if it were that simple, well, a lot of people would be earning a lot more money. So the black box is real and you can't pretend it isn't. How do you deal with the black box? You make small bets you make the smallest possible bets that you can. I used to have, this isn't ha hasn't happened in the last few years, but a few years ago, I would have clients come to me pretty regularly and say, I'm going to pay a company $30,000 and they're going to build out my whole paid marketing. They're going to write all my copy. They're going to, they're going to create all the campaigns. They're going to create all the landing pages. I just sit back and it never, ever, ever worked or works. Because again, if it were that easy, if $30,000, for example, were the only hurdle, a lot of us could put $30,000 on credit cards and that'd be the end of it. We'd be, we'd be done. We'd, we'd have these amazing businesses. I know, Whitney, you probably wanted a, a short and reasonable answer. I don't really do short answers, do I? Um, <laughs> you've got to make small bets you got to make small bets, the smallest possible bet. Also, you said you've grown a business organically. I wonder if I were to interview you, do you have a very good sense of the words that have caused that organic growth, the message, the offers? Are you very aware of, in other words, is your black box as <laughs> transparent as possible? Yeah, I have like a really niche. I'm a life coach for artists and very niche in what I do and the training I have and all that. But also I have like like my email between my email list and um like my conversion rate right now versus how many people are aware of my work and how many people hire me is like 75%. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes, many, many of us, I would say most of us experience extremely high conversion rates when our businesses are like in the up and coming phase where it's like, oh, this is working. You'll, conversion rates are usually above 50% because not that many people are hearing about us. And those people that are hearing about us typically are coming through a strong relationship. And of course, those are the highest converting people and there's nothing wrong with this. And it's amazing. The switch to paid advertising is the switch 
it's the polar opposite. Now we're, we're starting relationships from scratch, trying to nurture those relationships over the long term and having them become something. So one of the hardest parts of switching to a paid strategy is having the, the patience and the ability to manage your mind while you see everything that seemed normal in your organic business kind of goes out the window as you switch to a paid strategy. And maybe it catches up quickly. And sometimes it just works amazing. That does happen. I'm not, I'm not cynical about this. It's like, no, sometimes people just like hit the ground sprinting. But when people don't hit the ground sprinting, it's usually because they don't have a very good sense of the words, the messages that actually drove their organic growth. <clears throat> Those yeah. are the things where, that I interviewed five agencies last year uh, about the possibility of advertising my money school program. All five agencies to their credit said, before we ramp up ads with you at all, we would really like you to have more organic sales data so that we would have, so that we have more confidence in the tests that we will run to get your campaigns off the ground, which is another big part of um, switching to an ad, ad strategy. You asked about ROI in the first place though, Winnie, and let me speak to that. You've got to figure out what the advertising, what job it's doing in your business. Is, is the job of advertising to generate profit directly? As in, I have a $200 product and I want to spend $100 on ads and get and have 100 left over? Or is it, I have a $200 product, but I also have a $10,000 product, so I will spend $300 making a $200 sale because I know what I, my real goal is a $10,000 sale later. There's a huge difference between those two strategies one is much harder than the other. Do you have a sense of which one is more true for you and your business? Um, I'm moving from one-on-one to group. So, or I have moved from one-on-one to group. So, um, and all, and, and I should say also like my, my first year definitely were all organic, just like friends and referrals. And now all my clients just happen to search for me and I have good SEO and find me that way or find my podcast. Um, but they, but yeah, I'm, it's an $1,800 product. Um, I do still offer some group or some one-on-one coaching that is at a higher price point, but I'm, I'm ramp, I'm going down on that. I'm having a baby. So I don't want to be doing a ton of that right now. I'm, I'm guessing eventually I'll add in like a mastermind for a higher price, but right now it's just that, like getting to that, like $1,800 product. So your goal is to have some amount of money left over from that $1,800, $1,800 sale. Uh, let me rephrase the extreme version of this is it sounds like you would not be willing to spend $1,800 on ads to generate the $1,800 sale. I don't, I think I'm comfortable with like 600. Okay. I like 600. I'm not an expert at this, but that's enough money that you probably give yourself a chance. Another big factor here, of course, is the competitiveness of the market, you know, which is both direct competition as in other artist coaches, but also indirect competition in the form of everybody else who happens to have artists in their Facebook kind of targeting. So are, are you going to run the ads yourself? No, my, my husband's an email marketer, so he has some, he has connections to people that automate all the social and like ads and stuff. So I was going to, I'm working with a, well, I I'm like in the process of like signing a contract, but we just are trying to land on a place for ad spend, um, for, to work like hand in hand with, with an with like an expert at it. Are they going to charge you a fixed fee or a fixed fee plus ad spend or just ad spend? A fixed fee plus ad spend. Okay. Um, and what kind of in like, what kind of performance, like you said, contract, which is a swear word as far as I'm concerned. Contract. Sorry. In terms of working. In terms of like, they're like, well, you're going to work with us for a minimum of however long there's nothing wrong with that unless they are terrible. <laughs> it's a, it's month to month. It's month to month. Oh, okay. Yeah. You don't have to tell me how much you're paying, but I will tell you that I get 
I get nervous if a client is going to pay their Facebook ads contractor less than a couple thousand per month. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people will be like, oh, mine's 400 a month. I'm like, no, just stop doing, don't spend that money that way. Use that money somewhere else. A $400, a $400 per month ads contractor, oh, see, now we'll get quoted on this. It, it, a $400 per month ads contractor may be worse than no ads contractor. This is, yeah, uh, totally. I mean, I'm, I feel good about this person. I, it's uh, uh, just because my husband's worked with him on other clients, it's two grand a month. So for a month, at a, like month to month. Um, but I guess I'm trying to figure out if that plus the ad spend is, I don't know, reasonable worth it. Everybody should know that all my opinions about Facebook ads are as an outsider observer, an outside observer, not as a participant. So you always have to take what I say with big grains of salt, everybody. Um, what I want to say about Facebook ads is that I don't have much experience with people who dabble in Facebook ads and have interesting results from it. Facebook ads seems to be something where you kind of have to, you almost have to build your business around the ad campaigns as opposed to having the ad campaigns support the business. Does that make sense? It's like, once you're going to go down the Facebook path, you've got to go down the Facebook path. And that might mean changing prices. It might mean adding products. It might mean you sort of have to adapt to the, to the game. Whereas what we all tend to want to do, which I think is very reasonable is say, well, I have this product. I want to advertise it. And I just want that to work. It might, but if it doesn't, then the question you ask yourself is, how am I willing to adapt my business so that it works in the Facebook game? Yeah. Like what you said about adding a, a high ticket mastermind is, is uh, spot on in terms, like that's what I'm saying. Somebody in your position would say, I have this $1,800 group. I don't really intend to make much money on the $1,800 group. I intend for my high ticket mastermind to be the, the big profit center in my business. And the job of the $1,800 $1 group is mostly to pay for ads. That is not, I'm not saying that's the right approach. I'm saying that's a very common approach. Got it. Something along those lines. That makes sense. Uh, the other thing about working with Facebook ads contractors is I would encourage you to be a very annoying client and ask a million questions and talk to other people. See, I would hate to be a Facebook ads contractor. Talk to other people and find out what their people are doing and then go and ask your contractor why you're not doing that. Not because you should be, but because that question will yield more insight for you. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like once you go down the Facebook path, you've got to go down the Facebook path. I think what you're talking about right now, Mark, is so such a, a great, way to look at it. And really, I hadn't thought about it that way before. But when you go all in on Facebook ads, and when I've seen colleagues and other companies that do, or even marketing campaigns that do, it, it really does it all of a sudden, it's it's the, you know, the shoes on the other foot, everything starts being geared towards what Facebook likes, from the marketing copy to the lead page to the squeeze page to the sales page to the website sometimes for the company ends up changing. And if it's successful, great. But if it's not, then all your other marketing channels are affected, whether positively or to your detriment. So that's a really good point. Yeah. And it's, um, so the last thing I want to say about that is I have had clients and I still have some clients who give Facebook advertising credit that I don't think it deserves meaning they have these amazing businesses. They've built, you know, incredible podcasts, uh, amazing sort of content driven or, or, or other organic reach. But since Facebook is perceived to be, it's like a lever. It's like, there's, we think that Facebook advertising eliminates the black box. A lot of my clients actually do believe that. They're like, no, you just spend more on ads, more ads, more money. Like, and I'm like, no, I've worked for you for years. We've done research into this. We know that a very high percentage of your customers do not come from paid campaigns, but because it's the thing that you find it easiest to control, 
you over attribute your success to it because it's uncomfortable to say, actually, my success is largely, largely related to things that are not in my control, but they are in my influence. So I'm not anti-ad because I have tons of evidence that when people sort of solve the Facebook ads puzzle, it can be unbelievable. But I really encourage people to make sure that a Facebook, a paid Facebook campaign matches their business model, matches their personal values in terms of how they want to be spending their time and energy, and that they don't, they don't see it as an easy button. It's not an easy button. It's, if it were easy, way more of us would be making millions of dollars per year. I love the idea of getting comfortable with the fact that the, the black box exists. So many people don't, aren't comfortable with it. And knowing that, you know, Whitney's podcast may have been the thing that made someone want to buy, but the Facebook ad being convenient and it being a direct link was easy for them to purchase. And they liked that process. Like, okay, like which one ultimately did it? Was the Facebook ad or was it the podcast? It, getting comfortable with the fact that it's okay that it was probably both. That's right. Yeah. And the best, the, the best um, Facebook ads contractors, Facebook ads managers have system that give you some hint as to the relative contribution of in Aaron's example, the Facebook ad versus the podcast. There are, there is data you can at least use to make better guesses, but there's no such thing as perfect clarity. There's no such thing as a big black arrow that points from Facebook ad to profit. It's like, it's not a line. It's like arrows bouncing all over the place. You know, first they saw, first they listened to your podcast. Then they went to your website. Then they forgot about you. Then two months later, they saw an ad. Then they remembered you. Then they were talking to their sister-in-law and their sister-in-law asked if you'd ever listened to this one podcast. And then you're like, oh yeah, I've, I think I've heard of that person. And then you go back to the website and these, you, they just sort of ricochet around your world and then they buy, but you don't like the fact that it was a ricochet sequence that got them there. You want it to be, they did a, B, C, D purchase. And you want to be able to control a through E or whatever. And you can't, but you can influence a, B, C, D and E. And the best Facebook ads contractors know that. And they work with you to make that system work as well as it can. Just takes, you know, you, you really got to be like, I'm pursuing this strategy and I'm going to make it work. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Whitney. It comes up. I've never had a, a, a call like this one where this was not the bulk of our conversation ads. So thanks for bringing it up. Jenny asks, can we talk about personal health insurance? Yeah. I mean, it, right. It's not super related to bookkeeping, but all of us are dealing with it and it relates to taxes and hassle. Uh, you say 2022 may be finally the year that the premiums are high enough that we're looking at instead of going with something like private insurance or like a healthcare ministry. I'm not, I'm not well-educated on this topic. I do know, I know two things. One, about four or five years ago, I switched to a healthcare ministry and I've been told that the premiums I'm paying are probably, a th the, and they're not technically premiums. What I'm paying is probably a third of what I would be paying for private insurance. Um, it's not without its hassle. Like I have to pay in full for anything that we do and then submit for reimbursement and then wait 90 days, 180 days for the reimbursement. There's trade-offs, always trade-offs. Also, uh, my, my tax pro just told me that health insurance premiums are a deductible expense for us as self-employed people. Do your own homework. That was not tax advice. Whereas the, the, whatever my membership fees or whatever they're called to the healthcare ministry are not tax deductible. So, so when he and I talked about this, he said, okay, so you're paying 600 bucks a month to this health share thing. 
Um, he said, he said, I think for equivalent coverage with a private thing, you'd probably, that's not 7,000 a year. He said, I think a private thing would probably be 20,000 a year. So you'd get, take 30% of that 20,000. So that's six, you're down to like 14,000. And the reason you're taking 30% is that's what, that's the benefit of it being tax deductible. So he said, now you're down to about 14,000. He said, it, it'd be pretty tough for the, for the tax benefit to ever be a reason to switch back to private insurance. So he said, the only reason you'd ever really switch to private insurance would be if you're just not happy with the coverage, the experience, the, that all of that with the healthcare ministry. But my wife has been asking me to talk to an insurance agent and educate myself better about this because there are moments where she says she really wishes we had traditional insurance. And she, since she's the mom and she does, you know, kids help wealth. I know that's not that all moms do that, but in our family, she does well checks and all of that. And she's like, it'd be nice if we had regular insurance. So I may be doing some more homework there. Uh, recommendations for tax professionals. Casey is Casey Murdoch. He's been with my taxes for probably 12 years now. He does taxes for a lot of my clients. He's very familiar with our businesses, our online, you know, coaching consulting type businesses. He is his email address. And I can send this out in an email too, but his email address is Casey. That's C-A-S-E-Y at bcapproach.com. Casey at bcapproach.com. I've never really, I've never really worked with anyone else on my taxes. So I can't say Casey, I don't know if Casey's a million times better than other people, but he's done a good job. He saved my life one year tax wise when the government decided that they were not going to allow, uh, we had adopted a baby and those, those fees are tax deductible, but the government was saying they weren't going to allow our fees to be tax deductible, deductible. And it would have been thousands and thousands of dollars in extra taxes. Casey did something and I didn't have to pay those taxes. So is Casey really expensive? I said the other day I was talking to Casey. I was like, Casey, are you expensive or cheap in the tax world? And he said, I am neither. Uh, he said, there are people who charge a lot more than I do. And there are people that charge a lot less. I would agree with that. I well, say, I, I hate to even say the amount that I pay Casey. Um, it's comparable to your bookkeeper. I can tell you that. Who has, who else has questions about business models or managing their cash flow or investments they're considering in 2022 that they're excited slash nervous about want to make good decisions. Is, is really nobody going to ask me how much money they should be spending each year on coaching? That's along with ads. That's, that's the question I get. All the money, all the money on coaching with Mark okay. Butler. <laughs> yes. It's very reasonable. Other coaches question. cost much more. Yeah. Who's that? Where are you? Natalie Hunt. Hi. Oh, Hey Natalie. Um, so I gave myself a loan from my personal bank account. And yes. when I pay myself back, do I count it as an owner distribution? Uh, yes. Now, can I spend a minute with you, Natalie? Yeah. Why do you call it a loan? Why are you calling it a loan? Because I intended to pay it back. Okay. You could also call it an investment as, as in I put some money into my business for my personal finances. And then I, I intend to harvest that cash at some point. One reason you'd call it a loan is if you have a specific uh, repayment plan. Do you? No. Do you, do you intend to pay interest on the loan? No. Okay. So it is an investment. Okay. So legally I call it an investment, not an owner contribution or whatever. I, I don't know the words. No, you're actually saying it perfectly. It is an owner contribution. That's perfectly said. Okay. And when you draw the money back out of the business, it will be called an owner distribution or an owner draw. Okay. But I'm not going to run into tax problems or something, am I? 
not just by virtue of having done that. Not, nothing that we've talked about before is consequential to taxes okay. unless you sell your business. And okay. I, I say that sort of like as an afterthought because we're coaches, none of us ever sell, sell our businesses really. The reason it would matter is let's say that you put, whether it's 10,000 or 100,000 of your own dollars into the business, that would establish a basis for the business so that if you eventually then sold the business for a million dollars, the difference between what you invested and what you sold it for would be the taxable amount. Mm, okay. But these things kind of fluctuate because I put a hundred thousand in and then I take 40,000 out. And so my basis is kind of always fluctuating, but again, we're coaches. So we don't, if we were building whatever, a car company or something that we we're going to sell eventually, or a software company or something, There'd be more to talk about here, but no, there's no real tax consequence to uh, putting money into your business and taking it back out. Okay. Thank you. Great question. I'm going to jump. Thank you, um, Natalie. I'm going to jump off that question and say, by the way, everybody, that's why when you take money out of your business, it is not a salary or a payroll or it, it's just the person who put the money in the business, taking it back out. So it, that does not directly impact your taxes either. What impacts your taxes are number one, how much profit the business generated in the year and, or number two, how much you paid yourself in wages through a traditional payroll service during the year. Those numbers come together along with, if you have a spouse, if you're filing jointly, all of that goes into the soup and outcomes your tax liability. Great question. Uh, Jenny very dutifully put in the chat, how much money should I spend on coaching? <laughs> uh, coaches buying coaching. I told somebody one time that I was like, you know, the majority of coaching gets purchased by coaches, right? They were kind of offended. I was like, what's wrong with that? There's nothing Why wrong with that. We know it works. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so Here's my, here's my take on coaches buying coaching, on anyone buying coaching. I just ask people, why are you buying that coaching? Are you buying it because you're afraid of something? You're afraid to miss out. You're afraid of falling behind. I don't think that's a very good reason to buy coaching. Not that, it, not that it's guaranteed to be a bad outcome if that's why you buy, a co buy coaching. Sometimes people buy coaching because they are afraid of missing out and they end up having an amazing experience. I just ask people to check with themselves on what, what am I feeling right now and why am I doing this? And um, make sure they like the reasons. I did have a conversation with a coach the other day who was considering a $25,000 coaching investment. And I said, by all means, if you want to spend $25,000 on that experience, go for it. Why do you want to spend that $25,000? And she said, I find that I'm more motivated when I'm in that kind of environment. And I said, all right, fair enough. Now in her business, $25,000 actually represented quite a good percentage of the whole business. I mean, Spending that $25,000, there would be money left over in the business, but that was a good chunk. And I said, so if motivation is the thing that you actually think you're purchasing, the follow-up question is, do you think that is the most efficient way to get motivated in your, for you in your business? Because, you know, let's say of every dollar that your business, business brings in, you're giving back somewhere between 25 and 50 cents to this thing called motivation. And my math brain just says, is there any way for me to get a discount on that motivation just by, I don't know, reading a book, hiring another coach, listening to podcasts? Again, not because I don't want her to spend that money. You just, at some point you do ask yourself, well, how many cents out of every dollar do I want to give to, do I want to pay back out to other coaches? If that's a hundred percent, power to you. There are lots of coaches, by the way, who have at least a few who have told me that their sole reason for going and generating money is because they want it to pay for their continued participation 
and all these fun things they get to do in their business. That's their whole reason. Awesome. But if your whole reason is just sort of like, I don't want to fall behind, I'm scared, I'm bored. I think that's more likely to lead to regret than to lead to a happy outcome. So, plus I also think coaches do this to themselves sometimes where they're like, this is total Mark's opinion. People buy what they wish they were selling. So if they're offered a $25,000 thing, they, they sort of signal the possibility of selling that thing by paying for it themselves. To be less abstract, I love the idea of, a person would say, I love the idea of selling a $25,000 mastermind. That just sounds amazing. And then they're offered a $25,000 mastermind and they sign up for it as a signal to themselves that it's possible that people are excited to do that. That's okay if that's what's going on. You just want to know that that's what's going on. You want to have awareness of why you're spending what you're spending. You got to figure out what job your business does in your life and align, align the dollars that your business spends with that job or those jobs. It's probably not just one job. There you go, Jenny. I know you were dying to get that answer and that's why you asked the question. Uh, let's see. Oh, this is a great question, Melissa. What is your recommendation on how to think about margins as in profit margin? The question I get asked so often is what is the, be what is the right percentage profit margin for a coaching business? You're just gonna get an opinion. It's based on experience, but it's an opinion. If a, if a coaching business is doing much less than 50% profit, my eyebrows raise and I want to have a conversation. The beauty of coaching businesses and online businesses, whether that's courses, memberships, you know, whatever it is we're doing, the beauty is that they tend to be very simple and elegant and not require, you know, we're not, I, my, my good friend has a pest control business. He's got all these, it's a fantastic business. He's got all these trucks. He's got all these chemicals. He's got all these employees, technicians, customer service reps. He's got all these people. His profit margin is not 50%. He still makes truckloads of money, but he, it takes a lot more hassle to do it. It's sad to me when coaches take what is such a simple and elegant business and they don't let it be as profitable as it naturally wants to be. And the easy way to check in on that is if I'm seeing... 50 to 60% profit, I'm pretty happy. If I'm seeing like 10 or 20% profit, well, to be honest, I'm probably fine. I probably have a coach who's spending all of her money on travel and coaching. That tends to be where the money goes in these businesses. I think it goes back to the advice a lot of us have had from Brooke about reinvest everything back into your business. Um, I just realized this year that that's not appropriate anymore. Amanda kind of <laughs> called me out on the, I, I didn't make that entire mistake, but it was, we had a conversation about profit margin. So thank you. That helps. Thank you. And congratulations on arriving at that point. This thing about reinvesting everything. Oh, Brooke, my friend, Brooke loves a very simple, like, she loves, she loves like very simple, absolute statements, right? Like Brooke doesn't do caveats. That's caveats are not Brooke's thing. So if Brooke says reinvest everything, I would want to interview Brooke and be like, well, did you reinvest everything? I don't think so. I don't think so. And what does it mean to quote reinvest everything? Sometimes that gives coaches the, the perspective that if they're spending money, they're doing it right. Brooke told me to reinvest everything and I'm spending all, I don't have any money left. I must be doing this right. Maybe, maybe, but I would say that's maybe true for a year max. I have had the unfortunate experience of talking to coaches who have built multi six figure businesses. $200,000, $300,000 per year. And they take $0 out of their business. 
And it's not for the reason that I said earlier, where they're like, I just love being in this club and it's my favorite. I, I only want to spend money on this. Now they have other stuff that they would like to do in their life, but they haven't given themselves permission to harvest some of the cash from that business. And I just want them to have that permission from day one. The way I, I encourage people to baby step into this is I'll say as early as possible in your business, pay for something in your personal life with money generated in your business, a cell phone bill, a really nice dinner at a restaurant, uh, a vacation for your family. I've seen some people say, I've made myself responsible for the mortgage. I've made my business responsible for the mortgage. And it's this really nice anchoring where we realize, oh, the business's job is to the business's job is to pay for stuff in my personal life. So thanks, Melissa. Folks, I just realized I'm late for a coaching call. That's classic for me. It is so fun to spend this time with you. I look forward to doing more of this. We'll, maybe we'll set up a mechanism where you can submit questions ahead of time so you have time to think about it. And um, Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for being our clients. We love doing your bookkeeping. It's actually such a fun, fantastic business. And tell your friends, a lot of your friends right now have been ignoring their bookkeeping. We have a partner program and we want to pay you to tell your friends about us. Watch your inboxes for a, for a message about that. Okay. Thanks folks. We'll talk to you in the next one. See ya.